0: Well, good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing this morning? We're alive? We awake? Uh, As Jeff said, it was uh, a great camp that my wife and I were able to be at last week. Um, God worked in mighty ways. It was so cool seeing Him on display with these students. Uh, Like you said, 44 kids made professions of faith in Jesus Christ, and that's just a huge thing to see. Um, But man, I I missed you, and it is so good to be back home with our church family. Um, There is a love that we have for all people and an excitement to share the gospel with them all, but there is a very specific love that we have for our church family, and it goes deeper than any love that we have for anyone else. So it's just a a blessing to be back home, uh, a blessing to be here this morning, a blessing to open up... The book of Ruth with you all again. I know that our brother Marty did an excellent job going through the incarnation of Jesus last week. Very, very deep realities of who Christ is and I've heard from many of you how impactful that was in your own hearts and your lives. And so this morning I want to just kind of continue that thought of the glory of Jesus Christ on display in your relationship with Him. As I was reading through Ruth chapter 3, the verses that we're going to get to, I I was reminded of uh, when I played Little League baseball. Uh, I remember there was, a, there was a point in time when I was kind of in the middle. I was, I was not the oldest group of people. I was not the youngest group of people. I was working on my hitting, and there was a, a couple things that I needed to work on in my hitting. My batting average was uh, not good, and I needed help. And I remember there was a, there was a, a kid that came over to me from the, the bigger baseball field. Longer fences, bigger muscles. And then he came over to our little tiny field and, and he called me by name. He said, Hey, Patrick. And I thought, This kid knows me? Like he knows who I am. He said, Hey, I heard you're having trouble hitting. Do you, do you want me to help you out? I thought, Yes, this is amazing. Like after practice, he just shows up and spent about 20 minutes working on my swing and I was blown away. Like, like this older dude knew who I was, and I was so thrilled at the fact that he would take time out of his busy schedule. He knew my name. He would care for me in this way very intentionally. And I went to my teammates, and I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. They need to know that this guy just talked to me and helped me. And as I shared this information with one of my uh, baseball teammates, he said, oh, yeah, somebody had that happen to me, too. Like somebody came and helped me, too. They, they did that. They're, all the older people are talking to the younger people. I felt a little bit less special that I wasn't the only one. And then he told me, because I asked, why, why is everybody doing this? Why are the older athletes hanging out with us younger athletes? And he said, well, the coach on that team for the older people, he's told his players that if they go and encourage the younger kids, he will give them money for the snack shack. And so my paradigm of like, this guy knows my name and he loves me, it just was shattered (laughs) because I became this obligation, right? Well, he has to do this, and he's ultimately using me to get something. I don't know if you've ever felt that way in relationships before. Where somebody you know, you feel like there's something else going on here. Maybe you feel that you're being used for something. Or they're trying to get something from you. Or maybe you just feel like you're an obligation to them. I don't know if you've ever felt this way with your own parents before. I don't know if you've felt this way with God before. That, yes, He loves me, for the Bible tells me so. But He just has to. He's obligated to. And As I was reading through these verses, I realized... I hope and I pray that we will all walk away from this morning realizing there is no obligation on God's part to love you. He chose to love you because he loves you for who you are. And there's no need to wonder from his vantage point, is he looking at you saying, this isn't what I thought it was. I hope and I pray that we won't walk away from here the way that I walked away, realizing I was an obligation to that older baseball player. So let's read these verses and let's dive deeply into them together. Ruth chapter three, I wanna start in verse one so that we get the context, but we're gonna spend our time in verses seven through 13. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman, our our relative, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. So wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your best clothes. We talked about that last week. Your cloak, put on a huge cloak. Stay warm. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, "'You shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, "'and then he will tell you what you shall do.' "'So she said to her, "'All that you say, I will do.' "'So she went down to the threshing floor "'and did according to all that her mother-in-law "'had commanded her. "'When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, "'he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain.' And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid because you are a close relative. And he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. So remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. So lie down until morning. Father, I pray that you would enable us to see so clearly what love really is, and the love that you have for us. Uh, As we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, even after this service, God, I pray that this would be a defining moment for us to remember what your covenant-keeping love looks like and how we want to love you back with every fiber of our being but we will only be motivated to love you when we know that you first loved us. We will only be motivated to keep commandments when we love you, and we will only love you when we see the love that you have given. So I pray that your love would be on display, not obligatory love, but a love from your heart that cares for every single soul in this room. Teach us, and Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would see what you would have us see this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The last time that we were in the book of Ruth together a couple weeks ago, we had yet another cliffhanger. Naomi had this insane plan where Ruth was going to go down, as we read, uh, hang out with Boaz on the threshing floor. That's a strange plan because the threshing floor is known for a place of wickedness and immorality, especially after everything had happened in the harvest. This is a place where there'd be a lot of immorality happening. and, And Naomi says, go there, go there tonight. Go there now and and wear perfume and look good. Wear your cloak, not best clothes. Wear something that's cold outside. Cover yourself up, but do this now. And we ask the question, what is this plan? Why is this happening? We talked about, number one, narratives in the Old Testament are not normative. They don't tell us, so go and do likewise. They're just descriptive of what's happening, not prescriptive of how we should be dating. Um, So this is not a model of dating. Don't go out and date this way. This is a model, however, of what it looks like to see a godly man and a godly woman on display. We're going to see that this morning. Why hadn't Boaz acted yet? Maybe it was because Ruth was still in mourning for the loss of her husband. And so Boaz didn't want to just jump in and say, hey, I'm sorry that your husband died, but I want to marry you. No, he's waiting Uh, maybe it was because Boaz is older, he even calls her here, my daughter, he's old enough to be her father, so maybe, hey, I'm guessing that you probably want to marry somebody your age, so maybe you don't want to be with me, Uh, he's even going to say that in in the verses that we're covering. Maybe he knows that near relative that we're going to talk about, the closer relative, and he's waiting, wondering, is that guy going to jump in first? We don't have all the details, which is exactly like the book of Ruth, right? Verses one through five in chapter five, people just die, 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 die. Just suffering tragedy. And we want to just jump in and say, why did that happen? No answer is given. Why is Naomi saying this? Why didn't Boaz jump in? Why is Ruth doing what? No answer is given. We're just given descriptions of what's going on. So at the end of Naomi's plan, verse five, Ruth says, I'll do everything that you've said for me to do. So she goes down verse six, goes to the threshing floor, She did everything according to her mother-in-law had commanded. Now, verse 7, and we're just going to take this all together because the the point of this verse, the point of this book, the point is seen clearly in it, so there's no need to break it up into an outline. Sometimes the outlines, you kind of have to impose them on the text, and that's pointless. If the text doesn't have it there, we don't need it. We just have one main point. We're going to see it clearly, the love that Boaz has for Ruth, the love that Ruth has for Boaz, and the love that our Redeemer has for us. So, verse 7, Boaz has eaten. Again, I think that that is an excellent idea. If something uh, deep and potentially uh, difficult has to be shared, let's wait until people have taken a nap. Let's wait until uh, a feast has happened. There's, there's a time and a place for those conversations, and there's a time and a place not to have those conversations. So Naomi, wise to say, hey, let him eat. Let him just have some Chipotle. Let him hang out. Let him drink a little bit of wine. He's not drunk Uh, Verse seven, he had eaten and drunk. He is not drunk with alcohol. His heart is merry. That's uh, literally, my translation says his heart was merry, or you could say in good spirits, or he's in a good mood. He's in a good mood because they just had a harvest after 10 years of a famine. He's in a good mood because he has workers that are there with him that know and love Yahweh that will protect his character and reputation. He's in a great mood, and he lies down and goes to sleep at the end of the heap of grain. Now, he's doing that for two reasons. Number one, practically, he wants to make sure he's sleeping on the harvest so that if anybody wants to come and steal it, they have to go through him first to take the grain away. But number two, very practically, again, he knows that this is a place of immorality, and he does not want that happening. So he says, I'm going to stay here this evening so that not only will my grain not be taken away, but number two, I want to make sure that nobody's sleeping around with anybody. I want to make sure that this is a place of purity and not immorality. And so, we have a description of Boaz, happy, content, lays down, and she comes secretly. Um, This is just, again, Ruth is a ninja. Somehow, she's found a way to not be seen, to not be heard. She goes down secretly. Some translations say she came down softly. She's light on her feet, and she goes down, and she uncovers his feet and she lays down. So she uncovers his feet, and she lays down. Probably not on his feet, probably beside his feet, or at the bottom where his feet were, but probably not on his feet. Why is she uncovering his feet? Well, for verse 8 to happen. It happened in the middle of the night, literally in the half of the night, that the man was startled. That word startled is better translated trembled, Uh, There's one translation in the Old Testament, shivered. So what she's doing is she's trying to wake him up by uncovering his feet in a cold night so that he's going to bend over and try and pull the sheet back over his feet. In fact, verse 8, my Bible says he bent forward. Uh, Literally, the the word is he twisted himself. Um, It's also used in the story of Samson in Judges chapter 16 of Samson taking hold of the pillars. So it's taking hold of something. It's working hard to take hold of something. So here's the picture. Ruth uncovers his feet and lays down and waits. And a couple minutes go by, half an hour goes by, an hour goes by, and his feet start to get cold. And so kind of half asleep, he tries to find the edge of the blanket where it's supposed to cover his feet, but his feet are now uncovered. This happens on a regular basis for me at my household, um, whether it be my wife, who decides that during the middle of the night is the best time to wrap herself up burrito style in the blanket. And so as she wraps herself up, I have no blanket. And as I try to pull the blanket back over to myself, she's wrapped it underneath herself. So I'm just uh, lose-lose, won't be warm. It's okay for me, because usually I'm the one that's way too hot and it needs to be cold. That's what's happening here. The other time that always happens at my house, if I ever say things that don't make sense, it's probably because this occurred the night before. My precious son, Ethan, will he tosses and turns constantly in the middle of the night. Sometimes you will find his head where his feet are supposed to be, or you'll find his feet where his head's supposed to be, and you're wondering, how did you get here? And he just meanders around during the night, just moves constantly. But once his blanket is off of his feet, he does not have the ability to put the blanket back over his feet. And so he yells for everyone to hear. And it's always, Mommy, so I'm out. I don't need to get up. It's always, Mommy, I need help. My blanket's not on me. And so Hannah, in her grace, will go in and go, That's it. That was, that's all you needed to do, buddy like, what is going on? That's what's happening here. That's, this is what's going on. Ruth just goes mm, like that and lays down. And sooner or later, Boaz is going to get very cold. And so he's just, I, I picture him in his sleep, just trying to find where's the edge of the blanket. Can't find it. Oh, where, And then he just kind of sits up. And as he's starting to wake up, He can smell. I think that's the first thing. Because remember, she has perfume on. So I think he smells. First thing he smells, somebody's here. So, behold, end of verse 8, a woman is lying at his feet. Now, he can't see, and that's why he asks, who are you? And the, the, the you there is the feminine. So he knows this is a woman. Now, what's running through his mind? Because this is a place where immorality is happening constantly. Who are you? What what do you want from me? I think he's about ready to say, excuse me, we don't want this here. Please leave. But he's wondering, what's going on? I mean, the, the wits that this man has at the middle of the night being woken up just astounds me. The fact that he can even ask this question and say what he's about to say. When my wife wakes me up and says, it's your turn to get Ethan, it takes about 30 minutes for me to figure out what planet I'm on. Like He is able, just instantly wakes up, who are you? And she answers and says, I am Ruth, your maid. Now, this is a very important word. She says, I'm your maid. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 13, she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maid servant. So even in our English translations of the Hebrew text, you can see those are two different words. One is maid servant and one is maid. So she says, I'm no longer a maidservant, which is the lowest of the low. She is now saying, I am your maid, which is the same word that's used of Jacob's maid that was uh, helping out his wife. Remember Bilhah? She's able to conceive and give birth and be an heir uh, to Jacob. So this is somebody who has rights and privileges. I'm I'm, I'm not equal with you, Boaz, but I'm able to have rights and privileges even of a lineage of bearing somebody that can be an heir to your family. So she says, I am no longer just a lowly person. Now I am somebody who can be an heir, have the privileges of being a member in your household. She says, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. Spread your covering over your maid. That's used in Ezekiel as a metaphor for marriage. There's so much happening in this statement. Spread your covering over your maid. Number one, very clearly, she's asking, will you marry me? But she's asking it in a very poetic and romantic way because the word for covering is the exact same word that Boaz used in chapter 12, verse 2. You remember this interchange. May the Lord reward your work And your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Wings, covering, exact same word. So you could translate this, spread your wings over me. Now what is she saying? So number one, there's a metaphor here for marriage. This is a metaphor for marry me, bring me security. But number two, what she is asking, she's using the same word that Boaz used. And remember, Boaz said, I am praying for you, Ruth, that you will find peace, security, that you will find a place. You're you're alone, you lost your husband, you're with your mother-in-law, and you both have no food, no money, no way to provide for yourselves, and I'm praying that God will give you security. And here's what Ruth is saying. She's saying, Boaz, can you answer your own prayer? You remember how you prayed for me? that God would spread his wings over me and and give me security. I know how that can happen, Boaz, and it can happen through you. You can be the, the answer to your own prayer. God might use you. Will God use you? Could God use you? That's what she's asking. She's not cold. She's not saying, I'm freezing. Would you please put a blanket over me? What she's asking is security, right? We talked about this with the wings metaphor a couple sermons ago where a hen would have the the baby chicks under the wings provide, protect, keep them secure. And this, we have to just pause for one second because now we're talking about marriage. She's saying, will you please marry me? And again, that's weird in our minds. We tend to think, no, that should be the man's job. He's the leader, he's the provider, he's the protector. And yes, I believe that is the case. Why is Boaz waiting? Why is this okay? Why is there romance in what's happening? Because again, Boaz, number one, he's older. I think he's, as we're going to see, he's going to say, I didn't think he wanted me. Number two, I don't think he wanted to swoop in and marry her and ask to marry her when she's mourning the loss of her husband. So I think that he's waiting. Number three, I think that near relative, that closer relative, he's wondering, how's that going to work? He's just been waiting. And so Ruth is saying, in essence, I know you've been waiting and maybe the reason you've been waiting is because I'm younger than you but I want you. Maybe the reason you've been waiting is because um, I, I, I was mourning the loss of my husband and I'm done with that. I'm available. That's what she's saying. She's saying I'm here and I'm asking for you. That's why I believe this is happening in the evening at night because she's saying I want you to have first pick here. I want you. I don't want anybody else. And I believe that Boaz is going to say, I've always wanted you. It's a beautiful thing. But here, we have to stop for just a second because what she asks Boaz to do in marrying her gives us a beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to be against the backdrop of what the culture says marriage is supposed to be. She says, will you marry me? And in doing that, she's asking him, provide and protect and give me security. Her main reason for marriage is not, I think that you're hot. In fact... Since Boaz is older here, it's not that he looks like Thor. He probably looks like Thor from the Endgame movie, right? He's not looking like Thor from the other ones. And so she's not saying, will you please marry me because I think you're hot? Or will you please marry me because we're compatible, whatever that means? She says, will you marry me because you have the ability to give me security, to give me a place of peace, of rest? Husbands, that's what we should be doing with our wives. Giving them a place of peace and of rest. This shows us what the priority of our marriages should be. It's not sex, it's not romance, it's security. It's a relationship that is so secure, so protected, so defended that everything else we do flows from that. But it's this relationship, we build trust, we build protection and defense and security, and nothing comes against that. So, If you're married, that's the goal. If you want to be married, that's the goal. Be honorable. If you want to be marriable, be honorable. Don't be slick. Don't be fake or plastic. Don't settle for the romance that Hollywood would offer in romantic comedies. This is deeper than that. If you want a a marriage to ultimately glorify God and bring you deepest satisfaction, obsess about honoring God. Obsess about honoring Him and glorifying Him in everything that you do. There's a beautiful picture of this. There's a man named Robertson McQuilkin. Uh, he just recently passed away in 2016, but not before leaving us a profound picture of what marriage is supposed to look like. He resigned as president of Columbia Bible College and graduate school in order to care for his beloved wife, Muriel, who stopped recognizing him in 1993 and went to be with the Lord in 2003 at the age of, 91, uh, age of 81. So he was married to his wife. He was the president. He he was doing amazing things at this uh, Bible college. And he said, I need to resign at all because his wife had Alzheimer's and she stopped recognizing him. And this is his resignation speech. He said this, My dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for about eight years now. So far, I've been able to carry both her and ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC. But recently, it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. And it's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me, and she always goes in search of me when I leave home. Then she can be full of anger when she cannot get to me. So it's clear to me that she needs me now full-time. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She's cared for me fully and sacrificially all of these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I still would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. So there is much more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit, her tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her, I get to care for her. And it is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Brothers and sisters, that is what marriage is supposed to be. If you're a husband, that's the way that we should view our spouse. If you are a wife, this is what you should encourage and champion in your husband. And if you are looking to be married, this is the kind of man you should be looking for and this is the kind of man you should be. So Boaz is given the option. Ruth says, will you be that to me? And you have to hear that there's zero obligation in her asking him. She doesn't have to marry him. And there's zero obligation in him saying yes to her. He does not have to do this. Remember, we talked about the kinsman redeemer and the fact that none of the things that the kinsman redeemer had to do, avenge the murder of somebody, uh, pay for property that was sold, all those different things, none of those were on the table. One of them is about to be on the table as a part of the plan that's going to happen here, but the property is not yet on the table. So there's no obligation. Ruth is saying, will you love me and give me security just based on your character. And Boaz is going to say yes, based on Ruth's character. You're a close relative. There's a plan that can be in place here. And this, you also have to know, Ruth, and Boaz is about to say this, but Ruth is not asking for her benefit. She has broken protocol, according to what Naomi asked, right? Because Naomi said, you go down there, you uncover his feet, you lay down, and then what is she supposed to do? Don't do anything. Wait for him to do something. That will help him make the move, realize what's going on, and he'll determine what he wants to do. But what Ruth is saying here is, I need security for my mother-in-law. After all, the only reason that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer in this is because Naomi's in the picture. And that's one of the reasons why Ruth is so attractive to Boaz. That's what he's about to say. Boaz is blown away that Ruth would say, I will choose who I'm going to marry based off selfless service to my mother-in-law. Now, we can kind of say she was obligated to do that based on what she had said in chapter one, where you go, I will go, where you live, I will live. But she could have figured out another way to do this. And so just as amazing as her proposal is, Boaz's response is equally amazing. He says, verse 10, gonna, he's gonna react in a couple different ways. Number one, the fact that he reacts at all is amazing. Just incredible Integrity for him not to excuse any sin. He could easily say, I was tired. I didn't know who it was. And he's resolved just like Jonathan Edwards was to never say anything or do anything in soul or body, but that, will glor- that which will glorify God. So he wakes up, doesn't know what's going on. She says what she says to him. And then he does something that I think is just the best advice possible if you're in a sticky situation. He prays. This is just, if you find yourself in a tough situation, if you find yourself in a compromising situation, praying can really help put the brakes on any sin that's about to happen. So he says, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You've shown your kindness, the last kindness, to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. He prays. He instantly says, let's get this thing centered around who God is. And he prays. And his prayer is one of blessing. May God bless you. Why? Because you've shown your last kindness to be better than the first. What was the first kindness? The first kindness was saying, Naomi, I'm going to stick with you. That was the first kindness. I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin. I'm there. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. That was Ruth's first kindness. Ruth's second kindness, and Boaz kind of tells us what it is. She didn't go after young men, whether rich or poor. So Ruth could have married whoever she wanted. She said, I'm going to stay with you, Naomi, but she could have just said, and that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to stick with you, but I want to live my life. And so Boaz said, you could have picked somebody poor. Now, if you instantly, like I do, go, well, why would you ever want to pick somebody poor? What he's saying is, if there is somebody out there for love, you are just infatuated with them, you love them, and they're poor, but you don't care because you love them, you would have gone after them. Or somebody rich. This makes a little bit more sense in my mind. Somebody that can take care of you, provide for you. You didn't pick that person. I don't know if they had like a BMW and and Boaz didn't. I mean, we knew he was a little bit well off, but I don't know what a BMW back then would be, just like a really good looking mule or something. Um, But he says, you didn't go after somebody else. You didn't go after anybody else. You waited and made a decision that will affect the rest of your life based on a promise you made to your mother-in-law. And you want to marry me because you want to give her security. You want to raise up a son for her lineage not to go away. You want to marry me so that I can redeem her property and she won't lose it. You're making a selfless choice. That's why he says your last kindness, this kindness, by not going after anybody else, but thinking about your mother-in-law, that's an amazing kindness. That's an amazing kindness. She has picked him. Your kindness, the love, hesed that never, never letting go love. She never let go of Naomi, and she's not going to let go of Boaz. And I think in Boaz's response, you can hear that he was hoping, wondering, waiting for her. I think you can hear him saying, oh, I really want to propose to her. But I'm I'm old. Why would she ever want me? I really want to marry her, but maybe I'm not as wealthy as some people are. I don't know if she loves me. There's so many questions, but you can tell when she says, will you marry me? You can tell in his answer in verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. I love you. And I've been hoping that this was the case. And he says, again, I want to marry you. Why? Because you're hot, I want to marry you. Why? Because you're young? No, I want to marry you because you have excellent character. You are a woman of excellence. Everybody in the city knows who you are. You are a virtuous woman. If you take uh, your Bibles, go back in chapter 2, verse 1. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth. That word, great wealth. We, We wrestled with that word for a while because that's the exact same word that's translated here, woman of excellence in verse 11. It means character, it means everything about who you are. There's something precious about your character. That's why Boaz, I don't think it's just that he's wealthy, but he's a man of character, and here Ruth is a woman of character. So Boaz is thrilled. He has been wanting to marry Ruth, not because of her physical appearance, but because of her heart. This is deep, substantive attraction, not just physical romance. Not that physical romance is bad by any means, but this goes much deeper than that. If you're just, you're just trying to marry somebody for their physical beauty, if that's all that you care about, that's like buying a house for its paint. It's ridiculous. You want to see what's inside. And that's what Boaz has done. He's gone to the people at the gates. We're going to meet them in a, in a few weeks. The elders of the city that determine who is somebody of substance, who is somebody of character. They're wise and able to say, this is a godly person. And they've said that about Ruth. So Ruth... I would love to marry you. Boaz, I have been waiting and I'd love to marry you. And everything ends perfectly, right? Verse 12, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. This is a weird verse in Hebrew. There's actually five Hebrew words in this verse that don't really need to be there. Like if you wanted to get to the point, he could have easily said this with five fewer words. And so I think that Boaz, he has just found out that the woman of his dreams actually likes him and wants to marry him. And he just wants to say, yes, done, let's get married tomorrow. But he knows there is somebody else out there that can be a kinsman redeemer for Naomi to marry Ruth for Naomi's protection and security, and that person is a closer relative. So if we get married without asking that closer relative, and then that closer relative pops up and says, wait, I wanted to marry to get all of the benefits, to to be the redeemer, to do all these things that we're going to look at in chapter 4, then there would be a huge lawsuit. Ruth's credibility would have gone away. Naomi's character would be maligned. And so Boaz stumbles through verse 12. Like... uh, i got to tell you something and there's this other guy and I don't really know how to explain this. He's, he's closer. I don't want him to marry you, but I want to be the guy. That, but he's, he's stumbling because he doesn't want this to be the case. He says, there's somebody else. And then he says this. I love, again, his character, verse 13. Remain this night and when morning comes, if he will redeem you. He gets first chance and if he redeems you, then... Good. Because more than wanting Ruth, Boaz wants Ruth's security. And if that means being married to somebody else that will give you that security, that's that's good. I want you to be safe and secure. I want Naomi to be taken care of. What integrity Boaz has to be able to say that word good. I wouldn't have said that word. I would have said, look, we gotta give him first dibs, we'll try and figure out a way that he won't take this, but if he does, fine. Like, put whatever word you want in there, but it was never going to be good in my mind. But he says, good, Tove, this is a good thing because you'll be taken care of. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. He's making a promise on God's character. If God can stop living, then I won't be able to redeem you. But he says, since God never will able to stop living, as Yahweh lives, you can be assured, Ruth, that I'm gonna take care of you. So, lie down until morning. Again, just one last thing in the Hebrew, lie down. These aren't the words. Literally, it's, it's lodge here, stay here, lodge here, remain here. And even in that, you see his character because he could have said, lay with me, lie down with me, what you all know is a Hebrew euphemism for sleep with me. So he uses a very specific word to say, don't lie with me. Don't lay with me here. Lodge here. Stay the night. I want you to be protected. I want you to be safe here. And even how we're going to get you home, I want to make sure that you're safe and your character and uh, your reputation is pure. But I want you to be safe. So there's people out there. There's thieves and bandits. And don't go out there now. Stay here. But he uses a word to say, do so with purity. It's not a hint of immorality here. He's so safe, he's so honorable, but he makes a promise, as the Lord lives by the life of Yahweh himself, I will marry you. I will redeem you. Now, what's the point of all these verses? Throughout the entirety of the book of Ruth, there's so much going on, and that's why we're going slowly. Uh, We're going way slower than I even thought we were going to go, but... There's so much going on, we need to dive deep into it to gain understanding. But if we just drill so deeply into this story that we miss the overarching point of the story, uh, then I think we're missing everything we're supposed to be seeing. Redemption. Remember, our brother Marty kept talking about it through Family Bible Hour. Redemption over and over and over again, the word is used. And it's a picture and it's a pointing to our Redeemer. Our close relative. Jesus himself, as Marty talked about last week, had to become human so he could relate to us, be our relative, so he could redeem us. Boaz did not need to marry Ruth. He could have said, if the other guy wants to marry you, fine, and if he doesn't, I don't want to. There was an option here. There was no necessity. There was no obligation. Ruth had no obligation as well except for the one that she placed on herself in chapter one, but she had no obligation here. She could have picked somebody else. There isn't anything per se in this marriage that Ruth immediately benefits from. She says, I'm going to bring security to my mother-in-law, and along with that, I get a husband. But she's not doing this out of obligation, saying, so I have to marry you. She could have gone somewhere else. That's why this is a beautiful love story, but there is a greater love story than this. Nobody is being pushed in this story. You must do this. There's a greater love story, and the greater love story that the entirety of the Bible tells us is a love story that does not begin with love. It begins with hate and disdain. It begins with you and me saying to our maker, I don't like you. In fact, with our sin, we commit cosmic treason every day saying, God, I wish you were dead because I could be a better God than you and I want to be on the throne. And God had zero obligation to do anything with us except for punishing us. He had no obligation whatsoever to redeem us. But he steps into time and space and he says, I love you so much. While we were enemies, Romans 5 tells us, while we were enemies... Hated God. Ephesians chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. We couldn't do anything to get him to love us. He had no obligation to love us. And yet he said, I'm going to lavish love. Even though it's going to be spurned and rejected, I'm going to lavish love. Why? Because he loves you. Have we become so familiar with John 3.16? For God so loves the world that we forget everything that God did in the plan of redemption was because he loves you. He wants you. And he sends Jesus, and Jesus dies on a cross while you are still his enemy. And then all the while, as you are living life as an enemy of God, God is wooing you and saying, I love you. Don't you see my son? I love you. I want to provide for you. I love you. I want to protect you. I love you. I want to bring you security. And that's why there is absolutely no obligation on his part. He gives the offer to you. He extends his offer to you and says, I love you. Will you follow me? Now, we have an obligation, and that obligation is to bow the knee to him as creator. But bowing the knee to a king, submitting to him, saying fine, versus saying I see the love that you have for me and I love you back are two very different things. So I I have to ask you, as we end our time here in this story, I move to the bigger story. And as we prepare our hearts, even for partaking of communion together, I have to ask the question, have you gone to Jesus, your Redeemer, and said like Ruth, will you cover me? Will you bring me security? You're not gonna ask that if you think you can provide yourself security. You're not gonna ask for his protection if you think you can protect yourself. You're not gonna ask for his redemption if you think you can redeem yourself. You have to get to a place where you say, nothing has worked in my life. There's nothing that can bring me satisfaction, happiness, ultimate protection from God's judgment. Nothing can do that. No amount of my goodness, no amount of my hard work, no amount of my trying. It's always saying grace alone. I work my fingers down to the bone, but nothing I did could ever atone. And brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus Christ, which I know many of you in this room do, if you love Jesus Christ, maybe a deficiency in your understanding of your relationship with him is one of obligation. Well, I just have to work and he just has to love, but he doesn't doesn't really love me. And I just, I hope and pray that this section of scripture where you see two people that are not obligated, but love intensely, romantically, this is true love that you would say, oh, this is the love story of the Father towards me. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 3, oh, behold the wondrous love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called sons and daughters, children of him. It would have been kind of God for him to punish our sins by sending us to hell and then ending hell. That would have been very kind of God you must be punished, go to hell because of your sin and offense against God, and then I'll end it. That would have been kind of God. It would have been kind of God to say, you know what, we'll just we'll just make you cease to exist, period. No punishment, just cease to exist. Or maybe make a place in the universe that it's not really punishment, but it just, it kind of exists and you just kind of exist. But for him to say, I will bear the punishment of hell, an infinite amount of punishment on the cross, so that I can adopt you as a son or a daughter. That's that's insane love. And that love that he has for you and for me was a love that was given by his choice and not by obligation. He loves you. That's why we celebrate communion. Communion. We celebrate communion to remember God loves me. Hesed love, the love that Boaz says to Ruth, you have given a kindness, a hesed love that's a covenant-keeping love. One of my favorite definitions that I just recently read is hesed love is love with zero exit strategy. God loves you with a love that has no exit strategy. No condition, no there's a qualification here that if you keep messing up, I'm out. Because of the cross and the resurrection, God says to you, I love you with a love that has no exit strategy. And he's asking you, will you love him in return? And if you do love him in return, and you have asked him to cover you with his wings, with his blood on the cross, with his life in the resurrection, and you've said, I am yours, I love you because I know you first loved me. If that's you this morning, then these elements are for you to take to enjoy. As we pass them out, we are going to rejoice together in the Noah exit strategy love of our Redeemer. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as your lover, your friend, this morning is the morning to to plead with Him, cover me in your redeeming work to throw up your hands to stop the charade and say there's nothing good in me that can earn heaven. There's no amount of work that I can do that can get me saved. I need you to do all the work for me. So please give me security in Christ. Give me rest in his finished work. Today's the day to do that, to repent, to turn from sin, and to trust in the Savior. If you need time to make that decision, to follow Christ as Lord and Savior, if you need time to make that I would encourage you to talk with me, talk with Jeff, talk with somebody here. Don't leave here until you make things right before the Lord and ask Him to cover you in His finished work at the cross. If you need time, then just let these elements go by. These are for believers that love Jesus, that know His love for them. These are for believers. Don't take these if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. But if you are a believer, what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. It's going to be maybe not as familiar to some of you. And when it becomes familiar, you sing along with us. But as you're looking at these words that just paint a beautiful picture of what we studied in the book of Ruth thus far, in the valley of the shadow of death and deepest darkness, when despair rolls over us, God never wastes a pain that we go through. And ultimately, he has given us Jesus forevermore. He is ours to cling to with a never let go, no exit strategy and zero-obligation kind of love. Father, we thank you for the book of Ruth and the way that we can see the gospel on display so clearly in a very interesting and so much strange section. But, oh, it points us to our kinsman redeemer. And we just scratched the surface today, and there are so many more celebrations to come in this book where we get to see the redeeming work of Jesus. But just for this morning, Father, I ask that you would point us to Christ and specifically to the realization that he loves us with an everlasting, never-ending, no-exit-strategy kind of love. And it has zero obligation. Father, I pray that every single person in this room Whatever relationship that they feel they have with you, that they would see they don't understand your love deep enough. We try so hard with our Pharisee hearts to find reasons within us for why you would love us, to earn your love, to make you obligated to love us. It's no wonder why we despair and wonder whether or not you care. Father, I pray as we sing, as we meditate on these truths, and as we prepare to partake of communion together, that we would be encouraged, challenged, and comforted this morning by the never-ending, no-exit strategy, zero-obligation love of Jesus.